When I was a baby priest, after I was ordained first year, second year, uh, this was before I came here. Um, you know, I don't want to boast, but I used to be on the top of the class and, and all that. But at my time, if a guy was smart, they would send you abroad to study. But somehow I felt I was always passed over. And I was kind of not feeling good about that. And, and then I was given an assignment by one of my superiors. He was not the real superior, he was the deputy. Because my real superior, my provincial, was in Rome for a big meeting. So the deputy was acting as the superior. So he gave me an assignment which, of course, was not very pleasing to me. Because, again, I thought it was a slap in the face. But being a religious, you know, you obey. And I said, yes. And so I was struggling with all this. So there is a feast of Mary, help of Christian, which is May 24th. That's when we all made our vows. So some of the guys I knew, they were making their vows in this particular place. And so we all drove down to that place to be part of the celebration. In the meantime, my provincial had come back from Rome. And he sees me standing outside and says, hey, Brito, come here. I want to talk to you. I was mad at my superior because I was getting all these bad assignments. He said, no, I don't want to talk to you. He said, come on, come on. I want to see you. So I go into his office and he says, hey, help me with the homily. I said, no, you can preach your own homily, I said. <laughs> <laughs> no, because we were good friends and he was my superior, but, you know. And then he said, look, what did Vincent tell you? Vincent was my deputy superior. He said, this is the assignment he gave me. He looked at me and said, no, I'm changing that. But prior to that, in preparing for the novena for the Feast of Mary, I had made a novena to the Blessed Mother on my own. And the only grace I asked Mary was this. And I'm telling you sincerely. I said to her, no, all this is difficult for me. I don't know why God is doing this to me. I don't see his will very clearly. So I'm asking you, Mother, just give me the strength and the grace to accept the will of God just like you did. That's what I prayed for. And my superior looks at me and says, what did Vincent say? I said, this is the assignment. He said, no, I'm changing the assignment. Because when he was in that international meeting, there was a lot of discussion about the media. And they said, we as Salesians have not done a lot for the media, so we have to send people to be qualified. And my superior said he consulted some of the guys in my community, and they all mentioned me. Because the last time some guy came to study journalism was 15 years earlier. So they said, you're going to America to study journalism. I came to Marquette, my life completely changed. I feel it's a miracle of Mary, all I can say. Do you know that God was in love with Mary? That's what explains everything. He was in love with her because he was preparing for a very special role in the history of salvation. She was predestined. God chose her. And that's why he showered all these special gifts on her. And that's why we also bless her, praise her, honor her. So there is enough justification for us to venerate Mary. So the first question is, you know, how popular is Mary? Mary is very popular, especially if you go out of America. <laughs> Mary used to be very popular in this country. You know that? Before the council and around there. Every home in their backyard had a statue of the Blessed Mother. Am I right? Family said the rosary. I don't know what happened. Why the priests here got rid of the devotion to the Blessed Mother. It didn't happen in other parts of the world. We grew up with all that. You know? The popularity of Marian devotion, certain countries, Mary would look as if she is more important than even Jesus, which is not good. 
Like go to Mexico. Guadalupe. You know, in a few days we're going to celebrate the feast of Guadalupe. Before I came to Park Ridge, I used to be for a few years in Evanston. We had a small Hispanic community there, part of my parish. So we used to have feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. That was the first time I had an experience of that. Do you know what they do? On the day of the feast, at five in the morning, they are singing to Mary. And I complained to them, Mary is pregnant. What pregnant woman wants to be woken up at five, <laughs> five in the morning, even if you are singing to her? Do you know what I mean? But that is the love. Do you follow? There are people who walk from the city. They come through our parish every year because they want a party break or whatever in our parking lot. You know, they carry their own, you know, what do you call the toilets? You know what I mean? I mean, they walk. It's amazing. If you go next week to Maryville, the traffic there, the police have to control. That is the love for Mary. Same thing in India. There is, a, there is a shrine in India close to where I grew up, you know, where our Blessed Mother is supposed to have appeared in the 1600s, 1500s. Um, that's, a, that's called the Lords of the East. Over two or three million people come for her feast, which is the 8th of September. Um, you know, every country seems to have their own Blessed Mother. Have you noticed that? The Irish have Our Lady of the Knock. The, the Polish have Our Lady of Chester Hova, right? Every country. Um, because the Blessed Mother is such... Or go around how many churches dedicated to Mary, even in this country, right? Even in our diocese, over, I think, 50 to 80 churches. Uh, even in this area, Our Lady of Ransom, um, Mary Seed of Wisdom, Our Lady of Hope. Just look at that, just in this neighborhood. Immaculate Conception, Our Blessed Mother. The first thing I want to say is, we do not worship Mary. We do not adore Mary. We honor Mary. We venerate Mary. It's a different word. Do you, do, you, do you follow? We worship God. Mary we honor. We venerate. So it is, it is very important to make that distinction. The word used is latria. That is adoration given only to God. So that is the first distinction we got to make. Why do we honor her? Because she is the mother of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And she deserves that honor. So if we honor the Son, we honor the mother, right? See, we all know how mothers are important, right? I mean, God could not be everywhere. That's why he created moms. <laughs> no? And uh, I'm telling you, yes, I think of my dad many times, but I think of my mother. A lot you know so God gave us this mother so we honor her the other reason is she is the first and the best disciple who believed in Jesus first it was Mary who gave Mary to the world Mary gave Jesus or who gave Jesus to the world I'm sorry you know it was Mary who gave Jesus to the world so that's why we honor her and then she is our model. She teaches us how to live the gospel. Everything we want to learn about living as a disciple of Jesus, she has shown us the way. So we honor her. And also, she is our patroness. She watches over us. You've seen, you know, Mary standing there with her mantle. And she wraps that mantle around all of us, around the church. 
That's why she's called the mother of the church. So, so these are some of the reasons why we honor Mary. Because when we do this to her, the mother, the son is going to be very pleased, don't you think? Exactly, exactly. So the next thing is, you ask yourself, okay, where is Mary in the Bible? Where is Mary in the Bible? Uh, if any of you want to really look at a scholarly work on this, it was written by uh, a great American New Testament scholar. His name is Raymond E. Brown. He died a few years ago. He published a book called Mary in the New Testament. Mary in the New Testament. Uh, it's a great book to read. In fact, it was published in collaboration with the Lutherans. So they also agreed with that. So they have studied the role of Mary in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you know, there are some, what you've got to say, anticipations or prototypes of Mary. For example, in the book of Genesis, you remember? When after the sin of Adam and Eve, when God punishes Adam and Eve, he says to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers. She will crush your head and you will try to stri strike her heel. You remember that? And that woman is a kind of a anticipation of what Mary is. And that is why when you look at statues of Mary, there used to be a statue, and I think they moved it because of the construction. You would see there is a serpent at her feet. Usually the, the, the statue of the Immaculate usually has that serpent. So, okay. But you get references in the New Testament. Now, unfortunately, most of the books of the New Testament do not talk about Mary, as you know. And Paul, who has so many letters, he has only one place. He mentions Mary not even by name. There's letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, verse 4, Paul will say, In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to free those who were under the law. So that is where there's a reference to Mary. But it is, you know, indirectly, nothing more than that. Now, the other gospel is Matthew. But don't forget, for Matthew, the focus is not on Mary, it's on Joseph. So this year we'll be reading in Matthew. So in the Christmas time, all the stories will come from Matthew. And you will see there is annunciation to Joseph, not to Mary. So you will read about Mary, but not very directly in Matthew. But in Luke, you really get a beautiful picture of Mary. Luke is the gospel of Mary. Um, in fact, there is a tradition that Luke was very close to Mary and that uh, when he went on his missionary journeys or when the apostles went, they brought a portrait of Mary painted by Luke to different parts of the world. In fact, in India, there is a tradition that Thomas, who, the apostle who came to India, he brought a portrait of Mary painted by Luke. I mean, there is a kind of a legend. So... Luke is the one who portrays Mary beautifully. So he starts with the Annunciation, chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel. You remember that whole story. You know, the angel coming to her says, the highly favored one are full of grace. And uh, how Mary, even though she struggles, and she asks, how can that be? Because I don't know man. But she's a woman of faith. She does not question the angel. Unlike Zechariah, who is in the previous story, 
the annunciation to Zechariah about the birth of John the Baptist. He doesn't believe, whereas Mary, she believes. No, when the angel says, your cousin is pregnant, even in her old age, and the angel says, nothing is impossible for God. And she believes that. After the Annunciation, Mary goes on her visitation. Now, you know, this January, some of us were in the Holy Land. You know, when we went to, to the place called Ain Karim, which is supposed to be the visitation, boy, it was a steep hill we had to climb. You know, those of us who remember, um, Mary had to travel over rough roads in a caravan, probably on, on the back of a donkey. I don't think it would have been very comfortable for anybody, especially for a pregnant woman. But once she was filled with God, the automatic next thing she does is to go towards the neighbor. Instead of sitting there, I said, okay, I'm going to have a party because I'm becoming the mother of God. She said, I'm going to serve my cousin who finds herself in an unusual place. In her old age, she is pregnant. That was Mary. And when she arrives there, what does Elizabeth say? How come my, the mother of my Lord comes to me? See, already the faith of Elizabeth recognizing who she is. And then he, she blesses Mary. She says, because blessed is she who believed what the Lord had said to her, that it, that it will be fulfilled. So again, Mary's greatness is because of she believed. She believed in the word of God. Um, and then, of course, in response to what Elizabeth says, Mary sings that beautiful canticle, the Magnificat. Now, if you know the Bible, you will see Luke probably in presenting this canticle, you know, he was also using inspiration from a woman in the Old Testament. Her name was Hannah. You remember? Hannah was the uh, mother of Samuel, one of the great leaders of the Old Testament of Israel. Um, you know the story because Hannah was the wife of, um, what was his name, Elkanah. Anyway, uh, and uh, he had two wives. Do you follow? Those days, were they very smart having two wives? I don't know. Anyway, um, anyway, so the one wife had children, but this woman was barren. So it was a terrible thing for her because especially in the Old Testament, people thought it was a curse. You didn't have children. So she is distraught, she, she's in the temple praying in the morning and the high priest Eli sees her and says, what's wrong with you? Are you drunk? <laughs> she says, no, my Lord, I'm distressed. And then the high priest tells her, next year when you come back, you will have a child. And she has Samuel. In gratitude to the gift, for the gift of Samuel, she will sing this canticle, which is so similar to what Mary sings in the Magnificat. And Mary is considered a representative, what is called the Anavim. Anavim is a group of people in the Old Testament who remained faithful to God, but they were kind of the uh, powerless, oppressed, poor, ordinary people. Mary speaks in their name. So if you look at the Magnificat, God turns everything upside down. Don't you notice that? He says, he, he sends the rich away empty, he fills the hungry with good things. So God turns everything around. So Mary is singing that, saying, this God who has done great things for me, he's bringing in a new era, a new time. 
because everything will be turned around. And that was the hope of Israel. And so Mary sings the Magnificat. And then, of course, the birth, um, the senses. And just imagine the, 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 you know, what Mary would have felt. You know, any mother, you know, you would want your baby to be born in a beautiful place. The Son of God is going to be born in a place where animals were sheltered. How she would have felt. You know, it was a, but again, the faith of Mary to say, this is all part of God's plan. You know, how hard it is for all of us to recognize that. Now, this is part of God's plan. And then the presentation, when Mary brings Jesus into the temple to present him. Um, you remember Simeon, who looks at her and tells her, your soul, a sword shall pierce. That is the mother of sorrows. You know, she's supposed to bear a lot of sorrow. And think about that. There was a lot of sorrow in her life. Um, because she said yes to God. And that yes cost her a lot. Um, and then um, the life in Nazareth. You know, very simple life of a housewife. She was doing the ordinary things all of you do, all of us do, right? Drawing water in the, from the well. You don't draw water from the well. <laughs> but in those days, that's what they had to do. Cooking for Jesus and Joseph. Knitting, whatever she did. That's why I love the stained glass window in our Holy Family Chapel. It shows the Holy Family at home. The workshop, whatever. So Mary lived the life of an ordinary person. Isn't that interesting? She never did any of the great things we associate with all these, you know, big stars in our times. Taylor Swift, you know, is the artist of the decade and nothing. She was just a humble woman who did her job quietly with no recognition. And that is the hidden life of Mary in Nazareth. And then, of course, um, you meet her, of course, at the cross. Um, so Luke presents Mary in a very positive light to tell us that she is the first disciple, the best disciple. The other gospel is John. John has two stories which speak about Mary. One is wedding feast of Cana. You remember that? Chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. Um, this is the only story where Jesus goes to a wedding. Now you all know that when people go to parties, there are some women, you know, who like to enjoy the party, which is, that's, that's how it should be. But there are some other women, the first thing they did, they go into the kitchen. Can I do anything? <laughs> and Mary probably did that. Otherwise, how would she have known that they are running out of wine? <laughs> so she was really solicitous of the family, of the couple. So she says they are running out of wine. But of course, incidentally, you should know at the time of Jesus, the wedding couple had to provide enough wine for three days of celebration. At your wedding, probably the, the bar was open for six hours, I think. <laughs> right? Actually, you could have served water after three hours because most of them were drunk anyway. <laughs> Do you know? Imagine you had to provide wine for three days. And what happens? Mary goes to Jesus and says, son, they have no wine. Here is the intercession of Mary. And what does Jesus say? Mother, my time is not yet here. It's almost like he's saying, no, I, I don't know. I should do anything. But being a great mom, see what she does next. Calls the servants. You know what? He'll take care of it. She walks away. 
But of course, she tells them, do whatever he tells you. Those are very important words. See, when we go to Mary, that's what she tells us. Do whatever he tells you. The next time you meet her, at the end of Jesus' life, at the foot of the cross. While everybody has run away, the disciples are run away, she's standing there at the foot of the cross. And what happens? Jesus looks at his mother and his disciple, and he says to the disciple, Son, behold your mother. And woman, behold your son. So Jesus was not just entrusting his mother to his disciple because he was dying. He, what he was doing was he was entrusting all his disciples to the care of his mother. So she becomes the mother of all disciples. Now, unfortunately, after the resurrection, we don't hear about Mary. Don't you notice that? I mean, no gospel reports that she, he appeared to Mary. But believe me, I'm sure he appeared to her. Otherwise, Mary would have said, what? You appeared to Mary Magdalene and not to me? <laughs> I'm sure he appeared. But you know, don't forget the Gospels. The Gospels are not worried about providing all the details about everything. Their whole purpose is to make us believe. They are witness accounts. And that's why you read in the Gospels, we tell you all this so that you may believe. That's why they don't speak about many things, about Mary and all that. Their focus was Jesus, his mission, his work of salvation. That's what they focused on. The next time you meet her in the Acts of the Apostles, when the disciples are waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. You remember, she's there with the baby church, praying, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So she's there at the birth of the church. So Mary becomes the mother of the church. So the New Testament so provides you know, enough material about Mary. Um, but this is what we know. All right. Any questions? Do you, anybody, anything? No. It all makes sense? <laughs> Next thing I want to talk about Mary and dogmas. You know, the truths that we call to believe about Mary. Of course, the first one we all know, Mary ever a virgin. Um, because both Matthew and Luke make it very clear that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that is the virginal conception. And the church has always believed that she is ever a virgin. You know, that even after the birth of Jesus, we do not believe that she had any other children. Um, then immediately people will say, what about in the Gospels you hear about brothers and sisters of Jesus? Have you heard that, right? Now, here is one answer. The one answer is that in many languages in the East, like in the Middle East, as well as like in India, for example, most of these languages have no word for cousin. The only word we have is brother and sister. We believe that Mary was ever a virgin. So, because she was completely open to God's grace. Nothing else mattered to her. So that is the first one. But there are three other dogmas which were, you know, positively declared by the church. The first one is what we call the mother of God. Now, this came out of what we call Christological controversies. See, in the first three, four centuries, the church was under persecution. Uh, and so there was not a lot of freedom and luxury to do a lot of theolo theologizing. But what happens that by the third century, when the church started getting a little bit of peace, you know, we get certain of these controversies about the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? 
Because, you know, they knew he was God. They knew he was man. But how do you put these two things together? How could one person be two things? Do you, do you understand? So they struggled with that. So there was a priest. His name was Nestorius. He began to propose a heresy by which he said, Jesus actually are two persons. The human person and divine person. And he said, Mary is the mother of the human person, not of the divine person. So he said, she is Christotokos, in Greek means the mother of Christ, not Theotokos, not mother of God. So the church had to come down. I think it was in the Council of Ephesus. The church said, Jesus is indivisible. One person, two natures. He's fully God, fully man, but one person. So if Mary is the mother of the human part, she is mother of the whole person. Do you, do you follow? So she's called the mother of God. But doesn't mean that she gave birth to God, but she is the mother of God. Because if you divide that, then you divide Jesus himself. So that was the first dogma. So that is why in our prayer we say, Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners. So that was the first dogma. The second is immaculate conception. What is immaculate conception? It has to be different from what we call virginal conception. Do you remember that? Virginal conception is the conception of Jesus in Mary, but immaculate conception is the immaculate conception of the Blessed Mother. What is it? That Mary, from the first moment of her existence, never came under the power of Satan. She was never tainted by original sin. Because all of us are born with original sin. You remember what it is, right? You know. It's not a sin that was very original, but it comes from our origins, from the beginning. The sin of Adam and Eve, you remember? Because when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them what we call preternatural state of happiness. There was no sickness, there was no death, you know, there was no pain. And God gave them that, kept them in the Garden of Eden. But the one condition was they should submit to God. And they rebelled. Whether it was eating a fruit or whatever, but they rebelled against God. They wanted to be like God and do away with God. That was their sin. But in as much as they acted as the corporate heads of the human race, whatever they did affected all of us. So we are all born into this world in a certain sense. God's love in some way blocked within us. Now that's the way I can explain. But by our baptism, that is taken away. For Mary, it was anticipated. So by the merits of Jesus, in view of her role as the mother of God, God gave her this special privilege to be protected from original sin from the first moment of her existence. Now think about that. If she is going to be carrying the son of the eternal father, how could she be under the influence of God's enemy, that is Satan? So this is the immaculate conception. So the word immaculate comes from Latin, immacula. Macula means stain, without stain, Mary without stain. Now, even some great theologians had problems with this, like St. Thomas Aquinas. He said, he had difficulty, how we could say that? Because he said this will take away from the universality of God's salvation. Uh, because all of us are saved by the redeeming work of Jesus. But then there was a Franciscan, his name was Duns Scotus. 
he explained this in a very creative way. He said there are two ways of saving somebody. You can save someone after they have fallen into the lake. You can jump in and save them. Or you can prevent them from falling into the lake. And so what God did with uh, Mary was that he prevented her from falling under the influence of original sin. So it's a special privilege given to Mary. Now, even though the church has believed over the centuries, it became a dogma of faith only in 1854. It was declared as a dogma by Pope Pius IX, who was the longest reigning pope. And uh, he announced it as a dogma of faith. All Catholics should believe this. And what is interesting is four years later, Mary appeared in a little village in southern France in Lourdes to a little girl called Benedict of Subiru. And she appeared to her, I think, 13 times or something like that. One of the last times, the parish priest had told Bernadette to ask this lady, who are you? And what was the answer our lady gave? I am the Immaculate Conception. Interesting, she spoke in French. <laughs> you know? And in those days, you know, news didn't travel that far, 1858. So for an unlettered, uneducated girl, she didn't know what it was. She had to go and tell the parish priest. The parish priest understood it was Mary. So if you go to Lourdes, even today, there is a grotto and there is a statue of Mary. And the statue was made, you know, according to the description given by Bernadette. And, uh, and you will see Mary, you know, with a rosary in hand and uh, in a blue, um, blue dress with white and all that with the stars around her crown. Um, so Mary is the Immaculate Conception. And it is written over her head, I am the Immaculate Conception, in French, I think, or in Latin. So that was the other dogma. The third dogma was Assumption of Our Blessed Mother. Assumption of Our Blessed Mother. Um, what is the dogma? The dogma is basically that Mary's body did not corrupt, just like our bodies will. So what happens to us at the end of time, for Mary, God gave it to her before. Because her body could not corrupt. You know, because she had given flesh to the Son of God. So because God had chosen her for this special vocation, God was rewarding her. So that is the dogma of assumption. Again, the church has believed in this even in the earliest times. Um, in fact, there is a Christian community in southern India, in the west coast, they claim that their church was established by Thomas the Apostle in the first century. And they go back to the first century. And uh, in their community, they celebrated the Feast of the Assumption already in those days. In fact, they observed a fast to prepare for the Feast of the Assumption. So there was this faith. But the church never declared it as a dogma until 1950. On 1st of November, Pope Pius XII, after consulting all the bishops of the world, he declared that to be a dogma of faith. Now, a few Marian devotions. You know, some of them you know. Number one, Angelus. The angel of the Lord declared to Mary. You remember the days we used to say that? Three times a day. And the church bells would ring. I mean, our church bell rings at noon. And at six, I think. Do we ring? Three o'clock we ring. I don't know, six o'clock. I got to find out. Noon we ring, I know for sure. At eight in the morning we ring to call people to church for mass. Um, three in the afternoon we ring. I don't know why we ring at three o'clock. Maybe you should ring at six o'clock. I don't know if the neighbors would complain, but you know what I mean? 
Um, but Angelus, we prayed. Again, celebrating the mystery of the incarnation. You know, it says, Angel of the Lord declared to Mary, and she conceived by the Holy Spirit. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be done unto me according to your word. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So that's the prayer. So Angelus. Second, the litany. Litany to the Blessed Mother. See, when I was a child at home, every day, we would kneel for uh, night prayer. Every day. And my brothers would try to find some excuse to run out to do an errand. My father will say, kneel down. <laughs> every day we said the rosary. See, the rosary is one of the most beautiful Marian prayers, Christological prayers. But rosary is one prayer you're, you're, you're allowed to get distracted. Do you know what I mean? Because you repeat. By the very fact you're repeating, you're honoring Mary. Rosary comes from rose. You're offering roses to Mary. You know? So it's a beautiful prayer. Children can say it. Old people can say it. Doesn't matter at what level we are. Nature is repetitive. Night and day. Seasons come and go. So it is okay. You can say it in the car. You can say it in your bed. You can say the prayer anywhere. And uh, I say it when I go to bed. The last thing I do, after I put myself under the covers, I say the rosary. It's a nice way to fall asleep. Sometimes you may not even finish the rosary. You're out. <laughs> Sometimes you finish the rosary and you're still, your mind is running. You know what I mean? Uh, rosary is a beautiful prayer. It's not only Mary in prayer because we meditate on the mysteries of our faith. Joyful mysteries, sorrowful mysteries, glorious mysteries, and now luminous mysteries. So it's a beautiful prayer. The Hail Mary. Every child can say it. The Memorare, you know the Memorare, by Bernard of Clairvaux, who was a great devotee of Mary. Um, the Novenas, you know, we, unfortunately we have lost uh, the habit of saying Novenas. That is the childlike aspect of our faith, you know. It's okay to pray for things. It's God's decision not to give it to us, but we can pray for that. Pilgrimages, it's such a beautiful tradition in the Catholic faith. You know, going on pilgrimages. You know, one of the most beautiful pilgrimages is what they call Compostela in Spain. People walking, I think, hundreds of miles. Oh. But it's, they say people who have done it, including Martin Sheen. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, they said, what a great experience it is. Pilgrimages in Spain. Um, then one of the real great ones is what is called consecration to Mary. You know, there is a saint. His name is Saint Grignon de Montfort. He, he has this, his book, I think it is, what is it called, Glories of Mary? No, Glories of Mary is Alphonsus, I think. Pardon? True Devotion to the Blessed, devotion to the blessed Mother. Uh, in that book, he talks about consecrating your life to Mary. So, the last part of it. How should we be devoted to Mary? Remember that all great saints had a great devotion to Mary. All great saints. Uh, I wouldn't think any saint did not have a devotion to Mary. Even Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits. <laughs> His conversion starts with him going to a church of our Blessed Mother. He lays down his sword and all the accoutrements of his knighthood in front of the altar of Mary. And then he says, she will be my lady. Because every knight had to have a lady. She would defend her honor. Fulton Sheen, you have heard about him. You know, Fulton Sheen, uh, those of you who can read his book, his autobiography, one of the most beautiful Easy to read uh, autobiographies called Treasure in Clay. 
I read it as a young seminarian. Gosh, I was in my 20s when I read this. Uh, beautiful. He has a whole chapter dedicated to Mary. You know, and uh, he calls that chapter, The Woman I Love. <laughs> because he had such a beautiful devotion to Mary. So, and when, when saints did that, you know, they knew that Mary will work miracles. Um, so there is a story in the life of Fulton Sheen. When he was a young priest, he was studying in France, in Paris. And uh, he had never been to Lourdes. And when you are a priest student, you know, you don't have much money. So he wants to go to Lourdes. So he had enough money to buy the train ticket to go up and down. He didn't have much money to get a hotel. But then he said, Mary is going to take care of me. Day after day passes. Nobody is giving him anything. He's getting nervous. The ninth day is the last day of the novena. At night, he's getting a little panicky. He goes back to the grotto, kneels down praying to the Blessed Mother. Somebody taps him on the shoulder. This tall American, I think his name was Thomas Farrell. He looks at him and says, are you, a, are you an American priest? He said, yes. Do you speak French? Yes. Can you act as a translator for me and my daughter? We have to get back to Paris tomorrow. And that gentleman paid all his bills and took him back to Paris and he remained his friend all through his life. You know, it's a true story that happened. And, uh, and Fulton Sheen will say how many miracles he had seen in his own life. So we have this brochure. If anybody wants to take anything, please, I'll pass it on. Thank you for being here. Thank you, God. God bless you.